Well, we are continuing in our series called Exiles through the, first, the book of 1 Peter this morning. And last week, we opened up the discussion on practical holiness in the Christian life and how uh, lives of holiness should flow naturally out of a genuine belief in the gospel because uh, we've been not only rescued from the penalty for our sin by Jesus, but we have been redeemed from the power of sin and are being bought back by the blood that he shed for us on the cross. We've been restored into a new life of pursuing God's original design for us as his image bearers in this world. And last week, we ended our discussion with the first exhortation that Peter gives to love one another. And we talked about how much uh, Christ-like holiness is birthed out of simply loving one another as Christ has first loved us. And this morning, Peter is going to continue that idea. He's going to uh, get into another crucial uh, facet of our holiness from loving one another. That's, it's really interesting, honestly, maybe even a little bit unexpected. Uh, it's, it's a crucial tie-in here. So let's go ahead and read our text, and then we will pray, and then we'll begin. 1 Peter 2, picking it up in verse 1, it's flowing out of the command to love one another. He says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So uh, the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father, God, in a dark and difficult world, you are an ever-flowing fountain of joy that sustains us. And Jesus is our great living hope that this is not it, but that there is coming a day when you will right all wrongs. You will bind up every wound. You will heal every ailment and wipe away every tear from our eyes as you make all things new in a world where you ensure perfect peace and perfect justice are the new and glorious status quo forever and ever. God, we grieve with our nation this week after a horrific display of sinful hatred was acted out upon some of the most vulnerable in our society. 
God, teachers and school children, Lord, have mercy and give supernatural comfort to those who need it most right now, we pray. And would you, even in a terrible situation in Uvalde, Texas, give opportunity to the church that is there to be your hands and feet, to love and serve and care and give gospel hope in any way that is possible for them in order to display your heart for broken and hurting people. Lord, now as we get into this passage of 1 Peter today, would we see the relevance of being your people of being a priesthood, a holy nation, whose responsibility it is to proclaim your excellencies and how you rescue sinners out of darkness and into your marvelous light. Would you be with me, Lord? Help my words to be empowered by your spirit to be clear and to be helpful to these men and women here today who desire to live lives of greater faithfulness to you. As always, God, may I decrease in you increase for your glory and for our joy. In Jesus' beautiful name I pray, amen. Well, seeing as how the title of this series is Exiles, and a major theme of the book is uh, is sojourning, I can't help but keep coming back to these travel-related illustrations Uh, I've already told you that traveling makes me tired. I love getting home about as much as I enjoy going anywhere. Um, But in regards to my preferred method of travel, I definitely enjoy flying over driving. Driving long distances is not my thing, especially if it's at night. Uh, I get sleepy, and Amy has to constantly check on me, make sure I'm not dozing off as we're driving. But anyway, two places that I've driven recently are Jacksonville, Florida, and Louisville, Kentucky. And you know, I, I was, it was really interesting, I think, for me to, to note the differences of those two drives that we just made. We drive to Jacksonville, usually with our kids, because Jacksonville is where we're from. It takes us about five hours, but it feels like a lot longer than that because of the expected antics of a three-year-old, a five-year-old, a seven-year-old, and a nine-year-old, all in the same car. Um, part of that being about halfway through the incessant asking of the age-old road trip question. Are we there yet? Are we there yet? But our, our drive to Louisville, which we did split into two trips of about nine hours total, we went with our dear friends, Jason and Taylor Coe. And uh, we had a great time of just conversation and laughter and no asking of if we were there yet. But instead, when we got there, a very surprised exclamation of, oh, wow, look, we're here. That's how it felt, right? And uh, I begin with this anecdote because... Uh, The difference between these two road trip experiences, if you will, is very applicable to us as people who find themselves in the same boat as those that Peter was writing to in the first century church. And so as an overarching idea for our passage today, I think it's worth pointing out something that for Christians and people who read their Bibles, this should be obvious, but it's often hard to wrestle through the implications of. It's the reality that Until the return of Christ, the exilic journey, this journey of exile that we're on, is not one where God is taking us to a place, but where he is making us into a people. Does that make sense? 
Like we often refer to the Christian life as a journey of faith, right? That's not wrong when we consider the theme of exile that we see in this very New Testament book that we're uh, in today. But something I said in the introductory message of this series is the fact that we are metaphorical exiles. We're metaphorical exiles because we're not actually displaced from our physical earthly homes. We are literally at home, so to speak. You may not love that your home is in Crestview, Florida, but nevertheless, it is where you currently reside. Or maybe you do love it, and if so, the point's all the more clear. The journey that we're on in this life, on this side of eternity, is not one when we are making a pilgrimage to another location, another place. It's a journey, not of transportation, but of spiritual transformation, one where God is progressively making us into his holy covenant people in Christ. The author of Hebrews hits this idea several times, one in particular when he says, in Hebrews 13, he says, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. In other words, in this life, we're not looking to arrive eventually in some perfect place. But in whatever place we may find ourselves, God is progressively making us into a people who will worship him no matter what. Maybe that's obvious to you, but let me dig in a little on this word place. Perhaps you know, you know this already, there's, there's no perfect place in this broken world, and so you don't have an issue with that doctrinally, but the word place can connote different things. It isn't always referring to a physical location. Sometimes the place we'd like to get to is a set of circumstances, a certain career, a certain salary, a certain living situation, a certain level of comfort, security, happiness, a certain look to our family. Lots of kids or the perfect 2.5 kids, right? Maybe it's some magic combination of all those things I just mentioned, but nevertheless, there is a place that you really want to get to. And it's a place that you're hoping that God will bring you into. And so you're, you're praying about it, right? You're praying about it. You're reasoning with God about why you want it, why it would be so good for you to get there. After all, there's nothing inherently sinful about this place. And you would just be so grateful, wouldn't you, if God would providentially bless you and usher you into this place. I don't know all the hopes and dreams of every individual in this room, but I'm, I'm relatively certain this is not far-fetched. In fact, I'd venture to say that most of us have a place like that in mind. The first thing I'll say to that is that it's not wrong to have plans and goals for your life. If you don't, I'd say maybe you're not living with enough intentionality, right? However, there is a danger for us as Christians there's a danger for us to start rationalizing some 
circumstantial place that we really want to get to as a functional promised land, if you will, where we so desire to get to that place that we will begin imagining that it's only logical that if we are faithful, then God will get us there. This may seem innocent enough, but really it's an attempt to put God in our debt. This is like the prosperity gospel. If I do ABC, then God will do one, two, three for me. And if we're not careful, we can start idolatrously conflating the hope of eternal life with our temporal hope of the place we want to arrive in this life. Are you following me on this? Do you see how easy it is to slip into this? How dangerous this can be? To start banking all of our hope on God taking us to some place that we have romantically come up with in our own hearts rather than remembering that the journey of faith that we're on is one where God is making us into a people. It's not about a place. If we do this, we start putting our hope into something. Friends, we start putting our hope into something that God never promised us. Instead of staying encouraged in what he has promised us. This text today is all about the holy people that God is making us into by his grace. But I'm willing to bet that if you're like me, then maybe the first thing that God needs to deal with you on is the fact that his objective for your life is not to take you to your Goldilocks living situation. And here's a challenging thought. God's intention might be to never take you to what you think the perfect place in life is with the ideal combination of career, salary, comfort, security, marriage, kids, etc. And the reason, follow me here, it's okay, it's just a baby, we've all had them, right? Okay. And the reason, the reason that he may not be taking you there is because he is not nearly as concerned as you are about where you want to be. He's concerned with who you become. And just maybe... You not getting to the place that you want is actually part of God's purposeful, loving process of molding you into the man or woman that he desires for you to become. It's a tough lesson. 
There's a whole chapter in the book of Hebrews about it. Hebrews chapter 11 about men and women of faith who never got to the place that they were hoping to get to, but who became incredible examples of holiness and faith for God's glory and our benefit. For us to see and be reminded that until the return of Christ, this exilic journey that we're on is not one where God is taking us to a place. It's one where he's making us into a people. Now, here's the practical struggle that goes along with this. Okay? You're like, oh, no, you're going to keep going on this. Okay. <laughs> when we get fixated on where we want to be, instead of who we are supposed to become, and we start wrongly thinking that God is taking us to some place rather than making us into his people, when we start thinking this journey is one of transportation, not one of transformation, we start getting concerned in our lives with how it's supposed to look instead of how we're supposed to live. Do you see what I mean? Like if your metric for how life is going as a believer in Christ is, do my circumstances look how I think they're supposed to look? Man, you are primed and ready for a lot of disappointment, friend, let me tell you. Because God in his word never tells us how it is supposed to look in the here and now. So you're trying to, you're trying to get somewhere that you might never get to and that God did not promise to take you to. Church, listen. There are many beat up, discouraged, defeated, depressed Burnout Christians with a perpetual frown, just kicking rocks through life because they are fixated on how they think it's supposed to look, how things in their life are supposed to look. And their issue is not their circumstances. God is the one sovereignly ordaining our circumstances. Last I checked, He's not making any mistakes. Disappointment stems from expectation. And so the issue is their perspective. This whole book that we say we're building our lives on, the Bible, right? It's not about how things are supposed to look. You see, there are almost 1,200 chapters in the Bible. Three of them are written in a time when things look like they're supposed to. Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Revelation 22. <laughs> the rest of it, the middle part, is about how we are supposed to live regardless of how things look. That's what the rest of it's about. And who we are supposed to become in that process. This is a hugely important distinction. I, I hope that you get it. 
Because if you don't, if you don't understand all this stuff that I'm talking about right now, if you don't, if you don't get it, you're going to live your whole life like my little kids on the way to Jacksonville, constantly, discontentedly asking, are we there yet? When you could just be enjoying the transformative journey with God's people so that when God, when Christ returns, your response is, oh, wow, look, we're here. All right, so that is, I think, the overarching point of this text that we're in today. Until the return of Christ, God is not taking us to a place. He's making us into a people, his people, his holy people. And so the rest of our time, we spent discussing what kind of people we're being made into. Yes, we're his. Yes, we're holy. But there's another key aspect to it. So let's read the text again, and we'll kind of go from there. He says, put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy, envy and slander like newborn infants, Long for the spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed that you have tasted the Lord, that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For as it stands in Scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame." So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on, on the day of visitation. Now, uh, I've mentioned this before. Peter says a lot of things in a really small space, doesn't he? So I won't expound on every single phrase here. Thankfully, a lot of it, uh, he, he repeats himself, and he kind of restates these themes that he's been talking about already. He's weaving them through the whole letter so they stick. But with, the prompt, with this premise that we began with, that God is making us into a people, I think we could really boil this text that Peter uh, is giving us here in, in just two things. Two things. Two things we're supposed to do. One thing we should reject. One thing we should strive to embody. Let me give you those two things, and then I'll, I'll unpack them. Um, so he's saying we should reject worldly passions that undergird sinful individualism and produce conflict and competition with others. And we should embody passion for Christ that builds a redeemed, interdependent priesthood and breeds unity and love for his word and his mission. Okay, so one thing we reject, one thing we strive to embody. Let's take those one at a time. We'll start with what we're to reject because uh, we already started down that path last week if you were here. Uh, if not, that sermon is online. You can catch that later if you like. But uh, last week, we discussed the idea of how all sin is by nature selfish, right? It doesn't matter what your brand of sin is or what lifestyle of godlessness you pursue. Sin is innately about one thing, right? Pleasing, gratifying, exalting, 
protecting self. Okay. Like whether you're prone to be a workaholic who works through the weekend and neglects your family, or you're a lazy worker who's living for the weekend, just can't wait to lay down, that's not, about, that's not about anyone but you. That's about what you want, right? It's not about loving your family well or being a godly hard worker. It's about you being gratified and exalted, right? We talked about these last week. Or whether your sin struggle is anger or your sin struggle is lust, okay? Those are both about you, whichever one you struggle with. You get angry and frustrated and bitter so much because people are not realizing that to you, you're the center of the universe. That's where all your anger is coming from. Or you give in to lust so much because when life is not going your way, which happens a lot, you can just go off into a fantasy world where things are always going your way. And it's all about you. Different sins, same goal, live for self, right? And Peter says two things to the church about sin. First of all, he says, the worldly passion of sin wages war against our souls, okay? Like as much as sin is an attempt to help the self, in all actuality, sin in the end is destructive to the self, isn't it? Sin is always anti-flourishing. It does not bring life and peace. In our flesh, we're often deceived into thinking that it will, but it never does, right? Sin does the opposite of what it promises, always, okay? Sin says, do this, and you'll feel good, and yet you wind up feeling guilty, right? Sin says, do this and you'll be free, and yet you wind up enslaved. Sin says, do this and you'll be happy, and yet you'll wind up more discontent than ever, always wanting more. Sin says, YOLO, right? Live the good life, but in the end, it leads to death, right? Physical death, but also spiritual death separation from God and everything good that he wanted to give you in Christ. This is why Peter says, I urge you, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh. They wage war against your soul. We went into detail on that last week. Again, you should reference that if you're curious what I mean by sin and passions of the flesh. But the second thing that I think Peter's saying here is that A life of living for the passions of the flesh is anti-Christ and it's anti-church, right? A life where you pursue the passions of your flesh is one where you are not going to become who God is calling you to be. Do you know that? You will not become who God's calling you to be. You won't be built up into a spiritual house with the people of God whose foundation is Christ because you'll be too caught up in your own sinful individualism. You won't treasure Christ. Instead, you'll stumble over Christ. That's what our text says. 
You'll be enamored with you, not with him. You'll be living for your best life now, not eternal life when Christ returns. You will despise the idea of just being one part of a body with many members because your desire will be self-glory and self-sufficiency. And in your self-centered worldview, you will produce things like malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander because you will not see people as God sees people. That's how those things are produced, right? We talked about this last week as well. The gospel humbles us. The gospel humbles us. When we realize how much Christ has loved us, so much that he would die for us to pay for all of our sins when we were still sinners, that changes your perspective on life towards other people, doesn't it? We no longer see people as pawns in our scheme. We, never see, we no longer see people as obstacles in our way. They're either fellow saints, our brothers and sisters in Christ, to be unified with, or they're sinners in need of God's grace who we're supposed to reach out to and love. That's who people are, right? If you know the gospel and believe the gospel. James, the little brother of Jesus, knowing of the destructiveness of sin and how it will cause us to live in a way that's opposed to Jesus, and selfishly unwilling to really be part of his church, he says this in James chapter four. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and you quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it's of no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he's made to dwell in us? But he gives more grace. Therefore, it says God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will exalt you. This is the same thing Peter is saying, that we are to reject worldly passions that undergird sinful individualism and produce conflict and competition with others. And instead, we're supposed to strive to embody passion for Christ that builds a redeemed, interdependent priesthood and breeds unity and love for his word and his mission. Now, Peter is drawing on a lot of imagery here from the Old Testament to help us understand what this means. The first thing he says is that Christ is like a living stone. That's the foundation, the the cornerstone, and that we as God's people are all now like living stones being built together on him into this spiritual house. And the way we become living stones is through a shared realization of the preciousness of Christ. That's what happens when we're born again, right? We, We begin to see Jesus as who he really is, and he becomes our precious Lord, Savior, God, and King, who's worthy of all of our worship. So the image that Peter is trying to help us see is that of the Jewish temple, okay? 
The temple in the Old Testament was the center of worship in the Old Testament where sacrifices were made and the priests were instructing God's people. And Peter is saying all of Old Testament worship was imagery. It was imagery. It was a foreshadowing. And the temple where God's presence would dwell, that was a picture of the new covenant people now. (laughs) Because God dwells in us. And God dwells among us. That's why at Mosaic, at the end of every service, we'll tell you to go and be the church, right? Go be the church. Because this building, if you didn't know, <laughs> this building is not a temple. And this building is not the church. We are. We are. But also, as you probably know, within the temple, there were designated priests in the Old Testament who would be the ones to facilitate worship. There were 12 tribes in Israel. The priests were all the men from the tribe of Levi. Within that tribe of priests, they would always have a high priest who would be the one to do the most important tasks in the inner room of the temple for the high holy days, like the Day of Atonement and whatnot. And Peter is saying, even the priesthood was a picture of us, okay? So... We're the temple, and we're the priest, okay? Jesus is the perfect high priest, and all who come to him become part of his redeemed, interdependent, holy priesthood. Are you following that? So, because I said that really the remainder of the book of 1 Peter is about practical holiness, I I titled this sermon very simply, Holy Together. Really creative, I know. Holy together, because as is taught in a variety of ways throughout the New Testament, the God who reconciles individual sinners back into right vertical relationship with God in the gospel, he's simultaneously reconciling those same sinners into right horizontal relationship with each other, right? So as he's reconciling us to himself, he's reconciling us to one another corporately. Pastor and author Mark Dever aptly says this. He says, it's impossible. It's impossible to get into a conversation about what a Christian is without talking about the church. If you simply read the New Testament looking for that idea, you're going to see it. It's undeniable. Almost all of the New Testament writings are not written to individual Christians. They're written to churches, right? And thus, part of the practical holiness for the believer in Christ, the Apostle Peter says, is that they would be together. That's part of our holiness, that we would be together. They would understand their faith in and relationship with Christ, not as a private individual matter, but as a close, communal, interdependent matter with other believers in Christ. If you notice, he doesn't just say that we'll all now be priests, does he? He says that we are collectively a priesthood, a plurality of priests, if you will. And he goes on to use other terms that simply mean a plurality, a chosen race, a holy nation, a people for God's possession, which you've already said. And when we have this mentality about ourselves, that this is how we're supposed to live 
And this is who we are to increasingly become rather than the conflict and competition that's produced by sinful individualism. Instead, we will see bred among us unity and love for God's word and love for God's mission. Okay, let's talk about those two things. We'll start with the word and we'll close by talking about the mission. When it comes to our unified love for God's word, Peter uses an analogy that many of us who are parents understand. He says, like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. Who here has fed a baby before? Mom, you've nursed, yeah, or you've been someone to administer a bottle to a hungry baby. (laughs) They get after it, don't they? I'm just like, can we just be real? Like, wow. Like, newborn babies are sweet and cuddly and, you know, usually pretty quiet because they sleep almost all day. But when it's time for milk, first of all, they will cry with a kind of a cry that you cannot ignore until they get it, right? They aren't going to stop. They aren't going to forget. They want and they need milk. They're on a schedule. And when it's time, it's time. You're on their time, right? Second of all, babies drink milk (laughs) with a kind of suction and determination that is incredibly intense. It's getting a little weird, I know, but just follow me here. (laughs) The only thing that I can liken the force of suction of a newborn baby to is like the drive-through at the bank with the tube where it's like, you know, like, like that, that, it's that intense. If you fed a baby, like when they drink, they don't stop to take a breath. They just chug until it's gone. Like it's amazing. And so Peter, I'm sure, he knew this about babies. Babies haven't changed in 2,000 years, okay? They've been the same. So uh, this is why he uses this to describe how we as God's people should be about God's word, right? God's word is our sole source of nourishment as believers. And thus, as a baby gets after milk, he says, you ought to be getting after the word, brother, sister, in Christ. We need to be on a daily schedule, Or when it's time, it's time. And we're not thinking about other things. And we need to drink in God's word with a force and a a determination that is intense. Not just like a little swig of milk, you know, like sending a verse a day to your email, you know. (laughs) That's not enough. That's not enough. We need to do real study where we sit and meditate and ring out a passage of scripture until it has fed us and given us the grace we need for that day, right? Then Peter says, he says, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good, which means that this way of needing and going to the word like a baby drinks milk is not up for debate, This isn't just like for the Christians who like to read. A lot of them don't. I have seen that. So often I try to give a brother or sister a book and they're like, oh gosh, I got to read. Like, I get it. You don't like to read. You want to rather watch Netflix, but we have to read the word. We must read the word. 
This is an assessment. Peter is saying it's a measure of if we're genuine in our faith. If you've tasted that the Lord is good, you will drink deeply, frequently from his nourishing word for the maturation of your faith, for your salvation. You will do it. It's like a baby will drink milk. Brother, sister, you will read the word. Or perhaps you haven't tasted that the Lord is good, is what he's saying. As a holy priesthood, we'll be unified in our love for God's word because of our new birth. It will be instinctual. That's how we'll go to the word. It's instinctual. But also because of our priestly duties. They require it, right? Priests are offering sacrifices according to God's instruction. So if they are not immersed in his word, they're not going to be good priests. How can a priest be a good priest apart from the word? They can't be. And I would argue that the mission we've been given as New Testament believers to go and make disciples really correlates directly with the tasks of Old Testament priests. So in your notes, I've just given you three general things that we know that priests do. The first thing they do is they exemplify God-honoring worship. Priests exemplify God-honoring worship. The Levitical priests of the Old Testament were put in place literally to help facilitate worship with and for God's people. In our New Testament context, this is the same thing that we're striving to do through our varying methods of discipleship. Every time we have a worship service like this, this is what we're doing. Through doctrinally rich songs that we sing together, through the teaching of the Bible, through encouragement to be a people of ongoing repentance and growth, we are striving to exemplify God-honoring worship. The same is true about our community groups and men's and women's discipleship groups. As we break bread together and we devote ourselves to deeper Bible study together and we confess our sin struggles to one another, these are elements of God-honoring worship that as a redeemed, interdependent priesthood, we want to exemplify. These are priestly activities that we're engaged in. Do you think about it that way? That's what Peter's saying here. The other two things that Old Testament priests did really flow out of this first one. They go hand in hand. Priests minister to people on behalf of God, and they advocate to God on behalf of the people. Okay? This is really what we do when we find tangible ways that we can care for one another and when we commit to pray for one another. We are being the hands and feet of Jesus, so to speak. When we minister to each other and we are blessing one another through advocacy to the Father in the name of the Son, by the Spirit, we, we pray for one another. We also aim to do this for outsiders through our outreach efforts as we feed the hungry, clothe the needy, and opportunities we had to do that. Other times we just pitch in and love our community like uh, at Easter and Fourth of July and use those opportunities to share the gospel with people, right? This is what we're doing. What, for, what he says in 1 Peter one, um, sorry, 2, 9 through 12, he says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priest and a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Get this, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Then at the bottom, he says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God 
on the day of visitation. So in our evangelistic efforts, we are proclaiming the excellencies of Christ who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light so that he might do the same thing for the lost and the hurting and the broken in our community. That's what we want to see, right? Gospel outreach is a priestly effort that we engage in together as the church. It's an effort to minister to people on behalf of God. And Peter says, even when non-believers speak against us, we are to continue advocating for them to God on their behalf, hoping that they will eventually see through what we're doing, that God is good, and that they should turn and repent and glorify him as they were created to do, right? This is one of the most important ways that God has determined to make us holy, church, by making us a people of his own possession, living stones built on the foundation of Christ, an interdependent priesthood, commissioned to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light together, together, right? And so as we close, I would just encourage you to think about this question. Is your hope tied up in God taking you to a place? Or are you content and even joyful in the fact that until Christ returns, God is making us into his people? Are you content with that? I just want to confess to you, (laughs) I'm only preaching this, well, because the Bible says it, but... (laughs) but also because I am a man who has at times gotten confused about the difference between being taken to a place and being made into a people. I have confused my own faith as a journey of transportation rather than one of transformation. I have, even recently, had to repent And remember that what I think my life is supposed to look like is not the appropriate measure of how things are going for me as a Christian, right? I tend to be someone, by God's grace, who has hopes and dreams and goals for my life. I know where I want to be. Anybody else? But I think from this passage today, and really the entirety of the biblical narrative, we can see God is far less concerned with where we want to be. His concern is who we become. That we become holy together, regardless of our circumstances. Is that your perspective on the journey of faith? Peter says it should be. Let's pray. Father, again, I just confess that we do live in a broken and difficult world. And I think the reason that so often we forget and we get confused about our exile and our sojourning 
It's because we're trying to get out of the difficulties. We, we don't want to keep enduring the difficulties that we're facing. It's so challenging at times. The trials that we have to navigate are so painful at times. We so want to arrive in a place where that's not the case. But God, we know that the time when that is appointed to happen is not until Christ returns. So Father, I just pray for myself today because God, I, I do confess, I'm a man who has struggled with this and does presently struggle with this. Father, I pray that we would be a church, that we would be men and women who are content and even joyful in the fact that God, you are making us into your people that is what this journey of exile is all about, that you're making us progressively, by your grace, you're making us holy. You're making us into a priesthood, into a nation, into a people for your possession, God. You're preparing us. You're making us ready for eternity. Father, I pray that we would be content with that today as the church that this would stick with us, that we wouldn't idolatry, idolatrously be trying to look for the, the place we so long to get to, but that we would remember that place is in eternity. It's not here. It's not now. You're transforming us, God. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.